Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Jim Mullins, one of the pastors. It is good to be with you this morning. This morning, I want to start by telling you about the one show, the one TV show that I have a love-hate relationship with. I'm intrigued by it, yet it makes me utterly paranoid. It is the show called What Would You Do? Who here is familiar with that show? Go ahead and raise your hand. Okay, if you're not, this show is crazy. Here's the basic premise of the show. This guy named John Quinones, you probably know him. He's kind of a news guy. He sets up hidden cameras all over the place in a park or in a coffee shop, and then they hire actors to do these crazy scenarios, and then they just watch how people will react. And then they take the camera and they'll look at the different people in the room as they respond to these crazy scenarios. Sometimes it'll be like a, a racist comment or someone mistreating a, a, a server or drop $100 and will you give it to the person who dropped it or will you pocket it? I mean, you, there's one where they're, they're saw, they're, they like have a bike with a bike chain and someone just comes and like tries to saw it off around a crowd of people and no one is even paying attention. But the one that gets me paranoid is the, the coffee shop one where they have someone come up to a, a, an actor, go up to a customer and say, hey, I'm going to leave my computer here for a second. Would you mind watching it? And then send someone in to steal it. Because I am the guy, for some reason, that everyone asks at the coffee shop to watch their computer. And I am so focused on my work, you could take that computer 15 times and I would like miss it completely. This show has me paranoid has me ready to basically, you know, defend the honor of the computer and go jujitsu in that moment. It's the show of what would you do? And the show will look at all of the different people in each scenario and say, how did they respond to the question of what would you do? And in the end, the implication is, what would you do in those scenarios? Well, today I'm not here to tell you about my favorite TV shows. <laughs> today I'm here to walk us through John 19. But what I think John is doing is he is doing something very similar to the show, What Would You Do? It's starting with a, a crazy scenario and then looking at the various characters and how they will respond and how will they answer the question, What Will You Do? And so let's jump in. Go ahead and open up to John 19, starting with verse 1. It says, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And struck him with their hands. When we open this chapter, we first see a crazy scenario. It doesn't ease us in at all. We are immediately rushed into an intense situation where Pilate, the Roman governor, has just had Jesus whipped. He's been trying to release Jesus, trying to free Jesus, but the Jewish leaders keep demanding that he be crucified and executed. 
So Pilate is trying to satisfy them. He's placating them. So he does a little punishment that is painful, but even more than that, it's shameful. Because what the Roman soldiers are doing is they are utterly mocking Jesus. They're playing costume party with Jesus. You know the Jesus you love that we just sang to? They're doing a costume party with him. They're making him a caricature of a king. They take thorns, probably from a date palm with these long 12-inch thorns, and they twist together a crown, and they put it on his head, and they knock it into his head until blood starts to drip and say, oh, look, it's the king. Look, he's wearing the crown. Someone finds some red cloth, purple cloth that's speaks of, that's similar to the royal robes that kings would wear, and they put it on him. And then they take this phrase that's reserved for Caesar, hail King Caesar. And they say, hail King of the Jews, mockingly in between punches where they're knocking loose his teeth. And what you have right here is a bloody costumed caricature of a king. What are they doing? They're trying to, to, to put Jesus in the Caesar costume. They're dressing him up like a pitiful version of Caesar, the Roman emperor of that time. And then they bring him out and show him to the crowds, and they say, behold the man. Look at this guy. And what they're doing in this is they're setting up a scenario. They're setting up a what-would-you-do question that everyone is going to have to answer. Are you going to give your allegiance to Caesar, the Roman emperor, or your allegiance to this pitiful, blood-stained, slap marks across his face, caricature of a king? Who are you going to give your allegiance to, Jesus or Caesar? Now, Caesar was the emperor of the land uh, this was Tiberius Caesar. Caesar wasn't one person, but it was people in the family of Julius Caesar who would step in and become the emperor, the ruler of the Roman Empire. And, and Caesar, the name Caesar itself, was a symbol for all kind of civil authority. But this particular one, Tiberius, he was cruel, he was paranoid, and he demanded absolute allegiance. He even had a temple that was devoted to the worship of him. So the stakes are high. Bow your knee to someone other than that Caesar, and you could lose your life. But Jesus has been performing these miracles, teaching in ways that it seems like it could only come from God, and you are put forward with the what-would-you-do choice. Give your allegiance to Jesus or to Caesar. So in this episode that John is giving us in John 19, the camera first goes on to Pilate. The attention is on Pilate. How is he going to respond to Jesus? Will he give his allegiance to Caesar, his boss, or to Jesus? Now, that might feel like an obvious choice because he is the Roman governor. He's in charge of Judea and keeping the peace in Judea. 
And he is a Roman. He's in the system. But actually, Pilate may have the most sympathetic posture towards Jesus of all of these people. He's intrigued by Jesus. He believes Jesus is innocent, and he keeps trying to release Jesus and trying all of these strategies to satisfy the Jewish leaders who want him crucified. And as he keeps talking, his intrigue keeps growing. In verse 6, he tries to release Jesus again, but the Jewish leaders are having none of it. They demand that he's crucified. In other words, they're saying, finish the job. Yeah, he's dripping with blood now, but we want to see him in the grave. Crucify him. Crucify him because he claims to be the son of God. And how does Pilate respond? He's shook. He's afraid. He's afraid because something is going on here. Now, the reason why they wanted him crucified is because he was claiming to be the son of God. Wasn't an illegal term in and of itself. Other kings in Israel's history had used it. But the way that Jesus was using it, they were saying that he's using it in such a way where he makes himself equal with the father. But Pilate might have heard something a little different because Pilate doesn't care about Jewish religion in this day. But the term son of God actually has some resonances in the Greco-Roman culture. They actually believed that there were certain people like kings and military heroes and philosophers who might actually have some divine origin. They might be like demigods or like gods themselves. And with as intriguing as Jesus is, as all of the, the miracles that he's doing, Pilate begins to inquire about his origins. He says, where are you from? He wants to know more. But Jesus gives him no answer. Pilate's trying to get him off the hook, trying to get more information. But Jesus isn't having any of it. The only thing he says to Pilate is that you have no power to crucify me because any power you have comes from above. Now, Pilate again tries to release Jesus. But these Jewish leaders are getting fed up and they've saved a card. They've saved a strategy for last, something that would manipulate and cause Pilate to respond. And they cry out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Is actually a brilliant strategy. It's manipulative, but it's brilliant. These guys, they, they shouldn't care about Caesar. Caesar's taken over their land. But this term, friend of Caesar, was actually kind of a formal term that was given to senators and governors who showed allegiance to Caesar, showed loyalty to Caesar. And they're insinuating that if you release Jesus, it might cause riots in the, in the city. You might be seen as giving your allegiance over to him. And if you do that, then we might go snitch on you to the Roman authorities and remove you. And this, this was not an empty claim because it was known for Jewish delegations to go to the Senate and, and to talk about governors who had maybe removed a statue of, of Caesar or done something to insult Caesar and they would be dead or removed. So Caesar is sitting here. He's got a choice. 
a brutal choice, a what would you do moment? Is he going to kill an innocent man, a man who might actually, there might even be more to him, something unique about him, something valid to his kingship? Or is he going to bow his knee to Caesar? And what does he choose? We know what he chooses. Caesar's the, his ultimate authority, and he says, I'm going with Caesar. But Pilate shifts the what would you do moment over to the Jewish leaders. The camera spans over to them. He's giving them one last chance. He tries to release Jesus again and gives the option to the Jewish leaders. In verse 15, it says, shall I crucify your king? He's got a little mocking tone you can imagine here. In other words, look, are you really going to choose Caesar, the Roman emperor who's taken over your land and mocked your God over Jesus? They could have just said, crucify Jesus. But they go further. They take a giant leap of compromise that is bordering on treason and blasphemy. One of the most scandalous things a Jewish religious leader of that time could have said. They say, we have no king but Caesar. No king but Caesar. And if you're familiar with Jewish law, you know that they should only acknowledge God as king and anything else that's under him comes under his authority. But to say they have no king but Caesar is to put Caesar on that throne. This is compromise. This is treason. This is blasphemy in the way that they are accusing Jesus of blasphemy. Just to, just to help you feel the weight of the moment, just imagine in the middle of the Cold War, on the 4th of July, if Congress got together and they raised the Russian flag and they pledged their allegiance to the Russian flag, this is more scandalous than that. And they have compromised. They have said, our king is Caesar. What would you do? The scene moves over to a new group. You can imagine the camera pulling out, and instead of just looking at individual people, now it's looking at the whole scene. Pilate moves toward having Jesus crucified, nails him to a cross, puts him up in the, in the public space, bleeding, wounded, the mockery, the caricature of a king for all to see. And essentially, it's offering to the crowds this question, what would you do? Give your allegiance to Caesar or give your allegiance to King Jesus. The claim is open for everybody. It says that uh, on top of the cross, uh, Pilate posted a sign, and the sign read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, the claim of the King of the Jews. And it said it was written in three different languages, Aramaic, so that the Jewish people could understand, Latin, so that the Romans could understand, and Greek, is the common 
commercial language of the day so that anyone else could understand and anyone else had to come to grips with the choice that had to be made in that moment of will you choose Caesar as your king or Jesus? What will you do? What would you do? Standing in the crowds, watching this man pinned to some wood, dying and breathing his last breaths. Would you give allegiance to him or to the power that put him there? Caesar isn't even present. He's off in Rome and he's able to execute someone out in Jerusalem. You can imagine as most people saw the ugliness of the cross and walked past it, they concluded, unfortunately, I've got to go with Caesar. Jesus may have done some nice things, but Caesar is powerful. Caesar is victorious in this ugly moment. But off in the corner, there's a group of people. It's peculiar that the passage even names these people, but it says in verse 25, but standing by the cross of Jesus were, the, were his mother and his mother's sister and Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. He'll go to, on to indicate that likely the apostle John was there as well. This small group of people still being attentive to Jesus, gazing at the cross, and they may be seeing something else. At least we know a few days later when Jesus is resurrected, they definitely saw something else. And they came to a different conclusion. This little seedling of the church came to the conclusion that as powerful and as strong as Caesar is, Caesar is not king, Jesus is king, and I give my allegiance to him. As they saw him resurrected three days later, they saw something more powerful than Caesar. But as they looked through the life of Jesus and all that he had to say, they also saw something more beautiful than Caesar, something more worthy. And that they saw ultimately that the cross was an evil thing that was intended to mock Jesus and to make him look foolish and to make him look pitiful. But what was actually happening in that moment, what was meant for evil was a rightful coronation of the true king. The most shameful thing that someone could experience ended up being a moment of glory as Jesus is lifted up on the cross and put forward as the king. Something that was intended to defeat Jesus and demoralize his people was actually the moment where he's victoriously defeating sin and Satan and death and all the things associated with that that haunt and terrorize our world. This satirical mockery of Jesus, as they called him the king and they hailed him as the king, was actually the truest thing that they had said in their whole life. And that these people gathered around the cross would come to see that Jesus is greater than Caesar. And when confronted with the question, what would you do? They say, I bow my knee to Jesus. They saw that Caesar takes life. That's how he rules. But Jesus gives life. Caesar conquers with the sword, but Jesus conquers with the cross. Caesar is a mere creation, but Jesus is the creator. 
Caesar makes a mob, but Jesus forms a family. Jesus dines with and feasts with only the powerful, but Jesus feasts and welcomes the weak. Caesar's a distant tyrant, but Jesus rules and reigns in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And a few years later, when Tiberius was buried, they would find that Caesar is dead, but Jesus is still risen, and he still is today. What would you do? In that moment, faced with the question, bow your knee to Jesus or bow your knee to Caesar, what would you do? The camera spans out and it's on us now. What would you do? Well, I think most of us in this room, if we were going to take a poll, we'd, we'd be on Team Jesus, right? Pretty easy answer. But I think that might be because Caesar is kind of irrelevant to us, right? Think about this. Who is Caesar to you? To most of us, he's just like an old dude in a toga who left a legacy of bad pizza and mediocre salad. That's all Caesar is to us. A page in the history book. Of course you're going to go with Jesus, right? But what if there are things today that are claiming allegiance? They're saying, you bow your knee to me. You give your life to me instead of Jesus. What if it's not Caesar, but if it's something else? I think we know that there are those things. There's a number of directions we could have gone. I was, my first attempt at this sermon was actually going to be focused on political ideologies and how they are the religions of our day that we're converting to and we're bowing our knee uh, to the left and to the right and everything in between instead of Jesus. Do you know what? I think you guys do a pretty good job with that. I think most people in this room who are still in this room <laughs> have Jesus as their king and not political ideologies. Eh, few other people, not so much, but they bounced. So, <laughs> but, so I could tell you, we could do that, and it would be really encouraging to you. But I think that there's another king, another Caesar that is demanding our allegiance that affects more people in this room. And this king is not a person, but it's an idea. It's king comfort. King comfort calls you to, to live the most comfortable and pleasurable life that you possibly can, and everything about your life is oriented toward that goal. King comfort is a way of life that demands your allegiance, your friends, your family, your work, your home, your money, your time, oriented to you. It's where we try to find the most comfortable job where we don't have to do any hard work. Or the most comfortable friends where there's no awkwardness or political difference or neediness. Or the most comfortable neighborhood without crime or without anyone who's different from you. Or the most comfortable house filled with screens and supplements and self-help books and pillows dedicated to your safety and your comfort. 
where you sit on your cushy couch and you order Grubhub and choose from 2,800 hours of Netflix content without moving any part of your body but your fingers. Sometimes the way that we live would not say we have no king but Caesar, but would declare that we have no king but comfort, and we have given our allegiance over to comfort in our lives. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that comfort is bad. God is our comfort. talks about that multiple times in Scripture. There are things like rest and Sabbath in Scripture, enjoying God's creation. Even the things that bring us comfort are often good gifts from God. I'm not saying that we need to live this like gritty life where we eat shards of glass for breakfast and replace our pillows with cinder blocks. Comfort is not a bad thing. It is a part of life. But when it becomes the whole of life, it becomes a tyrant that draws us away from Jesus, that draws us away from one another, that draws us away from his mission, that draws us away from what is should be offered to God and worship and instead is offered to ourselves in the pursuit of worship and pleasure. I had a season where I was very tempted to convert to comfort, to give King Comfort my full allegiance. About 12 years ago, I was living in Turkey and you know how you have like those dreams of like, I, this is my goal and I'm going to get to do this thing one day. I was like 24 years old and I was like living that. I was in Turkey. I was a part-time basketball scout, was doing mission stuff. And Turkey is an amazing place and it's just like suited for my personality. People just sit around and eat and have great conversations the whole time <laughs> and watch basketball and talk about Jesus. It was awesome. And then my wife had a near-death experience and was going through some really brutal things, and we had to move back. My daughter had been born in Turkey, uh, and we got back, and I figured, God, I had given this up for you. Of course, you're going to come through now and give me some good stuff, right? Wave after wave kept coming. My wife and my daughter had both received life-altering diagnoses. With my daughter, we didn't know if she would ever be able to speak. With my wife, you know, we had envisioned a full table with all kinds of kids, and it was clear that she was not going to be able to have kids after that. Okay, I've suffered enough, right? Now the good stuff comes. For reasons I won't get into right now, I had a season of getting death threats that had me so nervous in the middle of the night. Um, our roof was kind of collapsing in on us. And then one day I got home and we had been robbed. We pulled into the driveway and I saw that my front door was open a little bit. So immediately I grab a shovel, I run in through the door and I'm ready to just go Donatello on somebody with this shovel. <laughs> And I get inside, and the house is ransacked, and I could see that the back door, the blinds are still swinging, meaning that somebody had been in there just moments beforehand. And so I run out there with my shovel, about to, you know, throw it like a spear or something, 
was just dreaming of hitting this person with a shovel. I couldn't catch up to him. I walk in the house without saying it explicitly in my heart. I was done. Felt like Jesus had not fulfilled his promise toward me, and I was angry that I had sacrificed for him, and here's what's going to happen, and this is what's going to happen in my life. So for days, I just gave myself over to watching whatever I want, to eating whatever I want, and it, it was about medicating myself with just comfort and pleasure. If Jesus wanted to go sacrifice, someone to sacrifice something, he could go find somebody else. Because it felt like he was not fulfilling his promises, that he had betrayed me. Here's the deal. Jesus never signed up for my vision of a comfortable life. He never actually promised that things were going to be easy. And actually, if I was paying attention to my Bible, he constantly is promising otherwise. In case you don't miss it, it's said a lot. Over and over again, like in Luke 9, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up the cross and follow me. A cross is not a vision of a comfy life. In John 16, in this world, you will have tribulation. Go ahead and claim that promise. But take heart, I have overcome the world. 1 Peter 1, who wants to know what their calling is? Everyone wants to know what their calling is. The Bible tells you. It says, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. In other words, the cross isn't just something Jesus did for us. It is our way of life. It is our calling. James 1, consider it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials, when you meet trials of various kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, that even in the midst of the trial, God is shaping us into something. He never promised a comfy life. He never signed up to be a servant in the kingdom of comfort. And what I realized is the way I had been treating Jesus was not as my king, but as my personal self-help butler who was supposed to bring me warm and fuzzy feelings, success, and prosperity, and he wasn't fulfilling his job description. I was challenged by my wife. I was having this pity party, and she led me out of the pit. As I watched her respond to these events, and she, instead of medicating and pulling away, sunk deeper into the love of God, deeper into Jesus. I was going with King Comfort, but she was going with Jesus, and her life compelled me, and I was following her into it. One of the first ways she invited me into it was to not be one of those dads who just checks out on their kid who's suffering. When it comes to special needs, they say like half of all fathers end up leaving their, their families. But as she was engaging, she invited me to engage. And as my, my daughter and I played these sweet little games where she would just repeat stuff over and over again, and I kind of caught the rhythm of it, and I started repeating it over and over again, that those little ridiculous songs were more beautiful than any hymns I've ever heard, and we met Jesus in it. 
Uh, the, the love that my wife and I experienced with each other in that season was greater than our honeymoon, even though it was in the hardship. See, my daughter used to not want my wife to eat for some reason. It was like her thing. When she needed comfort, and sometimes it would be hours and they'd be on the bed, and if she brought some food in, the smells would affect her, and she, she just didn't want it around her. So my job was to prepare some food and then to go into the bedroom and army crawl into the bedroom next to the bed where my daughter couldn't find it, get a little, you know, fork of, of pasta, and then just hold it up, and then Jenny would lean over and grab a bite and then chew it. On the floor with the pasta, that was the moment where we met Jesus. Later on, what would happen is my wife encouraged me. She said, we need to do what Jesus did or called us to, to, to love our enemies. So we made this poster that was like a letter to the person who robbed our house. And we put it on the cinder block wall that faced the street. A lot of people were having their houses broken into. So we were pretty sure that it was the person was in the neighborhood. And we just thought nothing of it. And my heart began to follow and soften and be filled with love for that person. And believe it or not, one day someone comes stumbling into my yard, trembling, holding an iPad, saying, I found this iPad. I want you to have it. It was pretty clear he did not find the iPad. <laughs> or he found it, but he found it in my house. Uh -huh. And it was this sweet moment of the Spirit where, where he kept trying to give the iPad, and I had read Les Mis and was thinking about Jean Valjean, and I was like, no, I don't take the iPad. And you could see that he was encountering the love of God, and it was this moment we were praying in my front yard, and in that moment, the sweet presence of the love of God was so good. I'm looking at my iPad and thinking about all the stuff that I had lost and said, no, this is so much better. King Comfort or King Jesus. My wife showed me that King Jesus is so much sweeter, so much better than King Comfort. I want to ask a few questions to you in closing. I want to get, pose some questions. Because sometimes if you're like me, you think that you're following Jesus, but you're actually using Jesus as your self-help butler as you follow King Comfort. So reflect on these questions. Number one, are you pursuing numbness or are you pursuing the love of God? King comfort seeks to numb you. It'll use entertainment and substances and toys to numb you from the real world. And it may work for a little bit, but it won't last long. And sometimes we can even approach Jesus as an instrument of comfort to just numb us a little bit. But what does King Jesus offer? He doesn't offer numb. He offers love. What he was doing on the cross wasn't just dying pointlessly or generically, but for God so loved the world that he gave his only son with you in mind. He was loving you and showing up for you, and not just in that moment, but in your moment of suffering as well. He entered into your suffering, and he can show up in our moments, not offering to numb us, but to love us and to give us his love.
for those who, who are wanting to press into this deeper, one practice I would give you is fasting. Find that thing in your life that you're using to numb yourself and go without it for a while. Could be food, could be video games, could be whatever. Go without it for a while. And each time that craving pops up, each time that awkwardness of feeling uncomfortable pops up, use that as a moment to go and sit with and be with Jesus. Next question. Are you more committed to God's mission or playing games? Jesus calls us to a mission. His mission is accomplished on the cross. And he calls us into it as well. The cross is not just something for us, but it's the pattern that we follow as we participate in his mission. And it's not easy. It, for some of us, it's going to mean suffering. For some of us, it's going to mean walking with people through pain. For others, walking with the poor. For others, some really awkward conversations as you talk about Jesus. For others, and this is what I'm, I'm praying, is that we would have people in this congregation who love Jesus more than comfort and would go to the hard places in this world where Jesus isn't named yet and would announce the gospel in that place. He offers you mission. What does comfort offer you? It offers you games. At first glance, you might be like, well, the other one sounds kind of hard. I think I might go with games. And in the absence of engaging with God's mission, I can tell you right now, you've got a different mission, a game, fantasy football, call of duty, finding little Pikachus with your phone. And that's easier. It's kind of fun. But at the end of your life, you're going to look back and say, I don't care how many Pikachus I have. I wish I would have participated in God's mission. Final question. When it comes to community, are you looking for a club or are you looking for a family? King Comfort offers you friendships with affinity where you customize your friendships around the same hobby, same interests, same stage of life, same personalities. And then when it gets a little weird, you can just cut it off. But King Jesus is not interested in that. He offers you family. And that's what community looks like. It's where we take this posture of adoption with one another and we claim one another as family, even when it's hard, even when it's awkward, even when there's suffering. You actually see Jesus in this passage doing this, performing this unofficial adoption ceremony in verse 26, where he looks at Mary and he looks at John and he says, woman, behold your son. And then to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into her home saying, you may not be my mom, but from now on, you're my mom and I'm your son. And this is how we relate to each other. So my challenge to you is if you're going to live in the way of Jesus and not the way of comfort, is that we take this posture of adoption with one another, that the older folks in here, that you pour into the next generation and say, I will pass on the faith to the next generation and I will be a mentor, a father, a grandfather. Young families, are you making a seat at your table for the single people in our church who do not have family here and where they can be brothers and sisters and 
daughters and sons in the kingdom. Single folks, when you show up to that table, are you going to make it about you? Are you going to look over and see some of those kids and realize that they need an example of what it looks like to follow Jesus uh, in the next phase of life and pour into them? One of the sweet examples I've seen of this is uh, Abby Olivisatos. We prayed when we realized we weren't going to have a lot of kids. We looked at the other seats in our kitchen table that felt so lonely and said, God, would you fill those with people in your church that are like family? And she's one of the people who's become like that for us. And it was my privilege to walk her down the aisle a couple weeks ago when she got married. And then a few days ago, we're at another wedding and I'm watching her dance with my daughter and seeing how my daughter has grown and come to know Jesus and, and come to see things that I could never even say to my daughter because I'm boring dad and what does he have to say? But she has spoken into her life and God has used her profoundly being the big sister that she didn't have. So my question is, are you going to pursue family or affinity? What will you do? Will you bow your knee to comfort or bow your knee to King Jesus? And ultimately, it's not the question of what would you do? It's the question of what Jesus did. We end with Jesus on the cross, proving that he is a better king than comfort. King Comfort is temporary. King Jesus is eternal. King Comfort takes your life minute by minute as you scroll it away, but Jesus gives you life even when you were dead. King Comfort offers you a little numbness, but Jesus offers you deep love. King Comfort will distract you, but Jesus is attentive to you. And King Comfort may delay your suffering, but Jesus, on the cross, entered into and conquered suffering through his own suffering, claiming his rightful place as king. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your attentiveness to us in this moment. We are grateful that you, King Jesus, are greater than Caesar, greater than comfort, greater than all idols and ideologies, greater than all uh, political figures, greater than anything that puts claim on our life. And we pray as we come forward now and take communion that this would be an act of pledging allegiance to the true King. In Jesus' name, amen.